It's Friday afternoon. That means it's time for DC Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris, along with Jim Wiesmeyer, Pro Farmers Prognosticator of Signal and Noise. And actually, we got a fair amount of signal to sort through this oh, week, Jim. Um, we do. We do. Uh, lots right. of signals and, of course, noise, but some pretty interesting signals on that. Some ag policy, CRP, you know, food box, you know, things like that. I'll let you step us through them, John. Yeah, we, we got a whole laundry list if you are uh, joining us live on the AgriTalk Facebook page, which we do every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central. Feel free to join Ian on the chat function there and send us your questions and we'll answer them in somewhat real time there. So please uh, be part of the conversation. Um, and Jim, before we get started, we'll start with WIP Plus here in just a second because that does keep coming back. On Twitter, um, and that is acknowledging that Today is my at Farm Journal, um, and uh, but the good news is that DC Signal to Noise is going to continue in one form or fashion, and we're still figuring that out. But uh, this is going to be going to continue to be here and continue to be a uh, wide open uh, forum to discuss agriculture policy. So we will, uh, or the show will be continuing in one form or another. Rest assured. So let's get on to that Whip Plus, uh, Jim. What is the latest on that? Well, it really hasn't changed, although I can acknowledge farmers' frustrations who, when is this coming? Because it's actually 2019 crop. And, you know, Senator Thune a couple of weeks ago on AgriTalk laid it on the line, I think, quite accurately. Uh, now that uh, they have a better understanding of, uh, of, of other farm programs that's tapping, you know, some of the money, you know, quality uh, uh, adjustment in particular, uh, they'll soon know whether or not they have necessary funds. So I think relatively soon, some second half 2019 crop WIP plus payment should be uh, made. Now, if they have to have more funding, uh, to me, Congress will take that up in, in a must-pass uh, spending measure, and that's later rather than sooner, and they'll probably want to add uh, 2020 crop relative to the derecho problems that we had last year and some southeastern states, you know, problems. So that's, again, later rather than sooner. But I think the money is coming, uh, but they may need to request additional funding, John. That's the best we know, and it's a continued uh, 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 same conclusion. But but the reason we're in this uh, mess is because I think it's the worst administered USDA program in my career. They held it back. Hmm. You had the problems initially where they put a no more than 25% of the county FSA offices could be staffed. Now that's up to 50%. So there were a lot of reasons, but it kept being postponed. Uh, I guess we need to call it a Biden farm program, and then Vilsack would concentrate on it, to be blunt. Yeah, and, and just a reminder, it was um, the initial payments were 50% of what a farmer was eligible for to make sure that there was funding available. Correct me if I'm wrong, but earlier you said that there is there's, there appears to still be significant funding left for that second half, but maybe not for all of it. Yes, absolutely, because they're going through 
you know, the, you know, quality loss adjustment program, QLA, and they're tallying that up too. So, you know, all that funding was, 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 was totaling up in that appropriations package. And even though we got more funding, uh, you know, last December, John, this is what's frustrating. They still don't know if they need additional funding. And again, they didn't learn the lessons that I learned early on in my career in Congress. They should have written in such sums as necessary. Uh, so they have the necessary funds, but appropriators don't like the Aggies to get that such funding because it's open-ended at that juncture. Yeah, nobody likes to lay a blank check on the table at all. Um, as you mentioned, it's probably going to, uh, once they determine what the amount is they're going to need, um, some must-pass funding resolution that's probably, uh, I would guess, a, a continuing a budget continuing resolution. When's the next deadline for that? Oh, well, we're going into the into the uh, month, several months from now, because we're talking fiscal year 2022. So, you know, we're going to talk late summer to early fall, John, regretfully. I hope I'm wrong. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, move on then to uh, news that broke today. In fact, you broke it this morning on AgriTalk with Chip, talking to Glenn G.T. Thompson, who's the ranking Republican on the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, they reached out to us, wanted to talk about um, unveiling their carbon plan, their climate mitigation plan uh, from the House Republicans. Uh, what's of note in their plan? Well, I make sure all listeners and, and viewers uh, call up AgriTalk because then you can hear it from Thompson's own mouth. So I, I like signals directly on that one. But it's an interesting, I think it's the Republicans putting a good faith uh, marker down for, for their vision of what they call natural solutions for climate change. And it's really five separate bills as he goes through. Thompson's one of them, uh, you know, the Sustained Act, that's really sustainability targets. Uh, uh, Davis from uh, Illinois, uh, more of the soil health transition uh, incentive programs, and then uh, restoring environment soils, trees, because trees are crops too, as he said, and uh, how it impacts the rural economy. There's a forestry improvement to restore the environment provision, and the uh, you know precision agriculture is involved with Representative Henson bill, Henson's bill from Iowa. So that's really the bottom line. The signal that I clearly got from you know, listening to a uh, ranking member on, on the committee, you know, G.T. Thompson, was that uh, this was a marker that they're having, and hopefully uh, they can work uh, compromises, you know, with their Democratic, uh, you know, counterparts. And, and I really think there will be solid discussions uh, on these five bills, John. Yeah, and Jim, you and I both know that a lot of times when we see these uh, alternative plans from the minority party come, or actually from both parties, and it doesn't matter which party is in the minority, which is the minority, they will throw out plans that they know is going to be are going to be immediately rejected by the other side. I, at least on the on the surface, this doesn't seem to be the case with with these plans uh, put forward by the Republicans on climate change. They, at least from what I heard from uh, Glenn Thompson today, uh, it sounds like things that, that farmers would rally around and there should be some common ground with Democrats on some of these proposals. I agree. It, it, it's, a, it's a common sense approach. And frankly, the majority in this town, in the ag sector, they don't know what they should do or will do. Uh, again, we've got uh, how do you measure, uh, you know, climate? Uh, how, how do you price it? 
you know, all those are open-ended questions, which to me uh, means later rather than sooner again on some of these issues being solved. But, you know, Mr. Thompson had a great quote in that uh, interview in which he said, this is not a destination, but a journey. I thought that captured it relative to, let's lay some things on the table, uh, conservation cost share programs, uh, incentive type programs, uh, voluntary, not mandatory, and a multitude of uh, angles at the subject. And so uh, I applaud them. They, they've taken a multidiscipline approach. And, and I, I think the, uh, you know, the bipartisan people on the House Ag Committee will take it to heart. Yeah, and let's be clear on this. No one expects this bill to really go anywhere. This is a, as you said, a marker in a negotiation. This is the yes. Republicans' bid, um, and they're and they're putting their bid down on the table uh, to counter what we have seen so far from the Democrats. And yes. hopefully, we will see some some uh, consensus on issue or ideas from both sides of the aisle. Yes. And and I ask him uh, whether or not they've run this by the Congressional Budget Office for a scoring. And he said, no, not yet, because frankly, I think they were you know busy putting this thing you know together. Yeah. But that's something to watch out for in the future. And he also was uh, uh, not hesitant. He, he, he did. He said it did not include what we call legacy pioneer farmers, you know, provisions, uh, you know, uh, on all those producers uh, who, who were very good environmentalists who did no-till before it was popular, things like that. Will there be any payments, even though it's a one-year payment for them? And I think that's to be decided later on, but it's not part of these bills. Yeah, but it's certainly something you and I keep hearing over and over and over yes. again from those pioneers who have been investing uh, their own money in it for some time now in, in many cases. Um, yes. Let's move on to another uh, another good sign of bipartisanship uh, this week, and that is um, on the infrastructure plan. Talks now that they may split it into tools, um, one of the two being bipartisan, which is a little interesting take on it. But um, uh, do you think we will see agreement from the two parties on the, the roads and bridges side, if you will, of the infrastructure plan? Well, if you throw enough money at it, you'll see an agreement. But I like to point out the clear signal I got from this is it, this was is being talked about openly by Senator Chris Coons. He's Democrat from Delaware. And early on, the Biden people in the White House told me, John, watch and listen to Senator Coons because he's President Biden's negotiator in the Senate, obviously from the same state. They're more than good friends. So he's a key ally of, uh, of Biden. And he, he's been talking with Senate Republicans about breaking up that infrastructure economic package into into two bills. Uh, and uh, this part would, would end up being $800 billion to about a trillion dollar, what he called a bipartisan bill. And and he said he listed it, uh, include items, roads, bridges, airports, uh, water projects, and rural broad, broadband. And that gets, all those gets wide, you know, bipartisan support on both sides of the aisles, John. So I, I'm upping my odds that something could happen. I think they want to check this one at least off. You can always add to it later, but it's a more than a good down payment, John. But how willing are Republicans going to be to negotiate on that when they also hear that Democrats are saying, OK, we'll work out the, the roads and bridges plan at you know 800 billion or whatever it is, and, and we'll have a bipartisan bill that'll get more than 60 votes in the Senate. But then we'll come back and do everything else we wanted in budget reconciliation. 
well, then they won't. Plenty they, notion they, of bipartisan negotiation. Yeah, they'll they'll throw up some hurdles on that. But uh, I, I think that there was a bipartisan group. They held a call, la- uh, you know, yesterday, uh, where lawmakers could find common ground. So I, I just think, you know, the, the Republicans also have a stake in this, John, because if they just keep saying no to things, then that plays into the Democrats' hand to say, look at the Republicans. They're just obstructionists. This is why we have to end the filibuster. So I I think that if they show in a true bipartisan spirit on this particular topic that they know scores very well with uh, uh, Americans on both sides of the political aisle and independents too, uh, I think that they're going to go along as long as this thing doesn't have any surprises in the underlying bill. But uh, with Senator uh, Coons involved, I've got, that's the signal that I was looking for. And we'll handle these other more ideological issues if they try to tack them on later, John. But uh, for the being, for the time being, this is at least a good step for something we haven't heard much of lately is, you know, bipartisanship. Yeah, indeed. And hopefully we'll see something uh, come together on this. And it it does score very well with the public when you look oh. at the, the jobs it would create. But, um, you know, you've also got the recurring concern about uh, the, the budget deficit, um, the national debt, and um, even inflationary pressures that could come out of this. Well, if there's a reason to borrow, this is it, you know, because you it's an investment in your country and it's been held off for far too long. So, uh, yeah, if, if it's as a result of sky high taxes increases, no, that's a debate. But uh, I think that they'll end up borrowing a heck of a lot of money for some of these programs that they need and that there's wide, you know, by, you know, widespread bipartisan support for I, I I don't have any qualms about borrowing your know, money for investments in the uh, uh, infrastructure, however you want to define it. Well, also, as we've discussed before, uh, uh, this compared to some of the other stimulus packages, we actually, as you mentioned, get something uh, out of the spending rather than just uh, sending checks out, um, which did help the economy, but you don't have. Well, yeah, if, if you travel, like the American job travel- or something like that. Yeah, if you've done much traveling around the world, we haven't lately, but over the last, say, uh, you know, decade, uh, we're getting behind on infrastructure. President Biden has said that. A number of bipartisan lawmakers have said that. It's time to invest, both short-term and long-term. And any American knows that. When you look at the problems we've had with bridges, our road systems, our our waterway system, our great waterway systems that are continued to be great, but they need investments in them our lock and dam systems, our port facilities, et cetera. You talk about being an ag uh, stakeholder issue. This is one of them, John. Yeah, indeed. Before we move on to another topic, uh, Pat asking about uh, that 5014 uh, cattle uh, policy, wanting to know where that stands in the legislative process. Yeah, I still give relatively low odds that that will come about to be signed into law because there's just as many opponents as proponents. Uh, Every time I check this out, that's the kind of the conclusion I draw. Uh, So it'll be curious to see if Vilsack, you know, Ag Secretary Vilsack 
comments and shows any support for this. Now, if he would do that publicly, then I would have to reassess on that one because this is a populist uh, issue that would tend to uh, flavor, even though Grassley's far, in this regard, he's a populist. Grassley, when it comes to foreign policy, is uh, you know populist. He's yeah, conservative yeah, on fiscal issues and, and trade issues. But I would watch Vilsack on this one. We got to get him to comment on, on this one. He'll probably say it needs to be studied, and that means uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, and doesn't uh, NCBA oppose it? They oppose it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, now I on the case of some Democrats, that, that may not help. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I think some of the NCBA comments are, are, are pretty good as, as far as reasons why. What, what Will it give them the outcome that, they, that proponents r really want to have? So there's a lot of murky areas in this. It's been tried before, John, without success as far as getting it uh, and an issue, but we'll continue to monitor it, uh, you know, to that listener. We haven't pushed it off the table because just from your asking this and some other emails on this, I, I, I know that's one of the top 20 topics that you, you, that uh, you listeners are uh, interested in. Well, and that's that specific proposal, but I, I would say the odds are fairly high that something will be done to address cattle pricing because uh, Tom Vilsack has been talking about that repeatedly, as have leadership in the House and Senate Ag Committees. That gets you into antitrust issues and things like that. Right. Absolutely. The transparency, the overarching umbrella of transparency, he's definitely up on. So I agree with you there, John. All right. So we'll see something come down the pike, but probably uh, this one in particular, will, uh, odds are not going to make it to the finish line, but it continues the discussion. Um, let's talk about that NAS data users meeting. You and I have been talking, you've been bringing it up for several weeks now um, in, in conversation about the, um, the the trust in NAS data. And you said this is going to be a, an opportunity for NAS to address address that trust. And I should say NAS, the National Ag Statistics Service, who put out all of the uh, uh, the big or put up many of the big reports, uh, crop yes. reports from USDA. Estimate, estimates, yeah. Now, it wasn't just yeah. asked. The World Board was there and other right. agencies within USDA, but it's primarily And the World Board has show. their own issues. The uh, World Board has their own issues, too. And they do, yes. Yeah. Well, first, I want to start with the biggest surprise, because NAS was asked, were there any surprises that you had with this conference? And they said, yeah, there were no questions from data users about the March prospective plantings report, John, and that showed farmers intended to plant far fewer corn and soybean acres than market participants expected. So that caught, that caught my ear because I monitored mm. it on the internet. But the overarching, the biggest issue was the quarterly grain stocks uh, updates because that was a major surprise, uh, you know, that that shocked the marketplace. And, you, you know, NASA announced there's a so-called top-to-bottom review of that survey that's underway, uh, how they gather the data, the training of the people gathering the data, the statistical work uh, to, used to generate the information, and uh, they're scheduled to complete it by September 30th with recommendations to be implemented after October 1. So uh, that criticism of that report more than got NASA's uh, 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 attention. So we're going to see that report, what it says. Well, and just as a reminder, um, Lance Honig, the uh, uh, crops branch chief uh, for NAS, uh, who oversees all of the crop surveys, 
told us that those two big revisions in the stocks report last year were triggered by changes in the coal stocks, which raised a lot of eyebrows, particularly for you, for you and me. And, and why revisions. that? Yeah, revisions. Yeah, came from changes in in, in commercial and not on farm stocks. Um, and so the question is, you know, why was that data coming in so late, or why did it change at a late date? Um, and I imagine that's probably going to be a big focus of that top to bottom review. Yeah, because uh, uh, you know. I don't think farmers and, and the commercials are not mandated to fill out those surveys. Now, I don't know why the lateness, especially from the commercial sector, that'll be curious to, to see why is that the case? Because that wasn't the case for decades, I know, covering, yeah. you know, these reports. So or, you know, I don't know whether they'll blame it on, on COVID-19 like they do everything else, but uh, it, 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 it's still raising more, eyebrows. So uh, at least we're going to have a review on that, John. And another question coming in dealt with what two actually for corn, a number of industry analysts just laugh at USDA's uh, on-farm price forecast for corn. They thought it looked out of whack uh, based on current central Illinois prices, what, around 550 or higher per bushel. You've yeah. got $6 dollar uh, you know, corn futures, or you did uh, uh, earlier. And USDA season average price is sitting at $4.30 a bushel. Now, WASDE forecast is for the total crop year. Now, remember, this is world board here. This is not NAS. And they said much of the crop is marketed earlier in the crop year, and that gives a higher weight to those lower prices. Now, while prices are and will be higher the rest of the marketing year, farmers don't have as much to sell, and those higher prices get lower weighting in the price forecast. Now, here's what I know farmers are going to say. Well, if USDA would have been uh, uh, far more accurate in their early season estimate or forecast of China's uh, corn import needs from the U.S., we would have had higher prices earlier, and I think they have a point there. Yeah, uh, they do indeed. Oh, it's going to be interesting to watch uh, what USDA comes back with in those uh, surveys and studies of their reporting process. Um, another bit of news that hit this week, uh, Tom Vilsack announcing that he is ending the food box program and looking to find a replacement, uh, which is kind of what we predicted when he came into office, right, Jim, is that uh, the food box pro program is well-liked. It has been largely effective, at least from the ag side of things, but it's the previous administration's program. So we'll end it, repackage it, and put it out there with a new name. Is that Absolutely. They're not really ending it. They'll yeah. take the best of and incorporate it into existing programs. Uh, you know, we at the time said we didn't see how they can just end it, given the bipartisan support for the effort, not only in Congress, but among the ag stakeholders, and their argument that there, their own argument, John, uh, that there's a need for food assistance out there. They, they still think they just want to back away from virtually anything uh, Trump uh, implemented. And, uh, you know, that's what this is the case. This was a, just a political swipe 
you know, uh, and, and they ended the name. But uh, and, and in fact, they did not give much of a heads up to producer groups because uh, while dairy is still happy since the donation program is coming uh, for them, so they aren't mm -hmm. as upset. But uh, look at some of the comments from United, you know, Fresh uh, on this one from the fruit and vegetable side there. Let's just say they're not pleased. Okay. Yeah, indeed. And, and in all fairness, there are adjustments that need to be made um, because when the program was put in place, there was a need to uh, address the shifting um, processing of food in this country. You didn't, with a sharp drop off in restaurant demand, you, you had food processors that needed to refigure how they got food out to the public. This was one way to do that and letting those food processors work with these regional distribution chains and get those food boxes out. We're in a different world now where that restaurant demand is coming back on strong. So you need to adjust that a little bit. But um, as you mentioned, the dairy and produce sectors in particular, especially growers um, have benefited greatly from this as have families that continue to have a need. Yes. And Phil Sackley is correct uh, and continues to be correct that there were inefficiencies involved in the program. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's always the case with government programs, especially when you have to accelerate it, which they did because of a Trump tweet and things like that. So uh, they did make adjustments as they went along, even the Trump administration, but they did uh, focus group interviews on this program by being they, I don't like pronouns, Phil Sack's people. So, and I think that is meritorious that, 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 they they're trying to improve the process yeah and and i think we need to say hats off to sunny purdue and and the trump administration in putting forward this program it you know despite the 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 problems and the changes needed that we both mentioned i think it was a very effective program and helped a lot of families and certainly helped the ag industry they scored one on there absolutely they did indeed all right let's uh turn to japan um the premier of japan visiting the White House today. They're gonna to be, uh, what, maybe right now while we're talking, I can't remember what the time is, Jim. Yeah, but, I'm uh, looking at my time schedule here. Uh, yeah, 1.30 is when they went into the White House for the meeting, then at 2.30, right any minute now, they're gonna be in the state, they're gonna have a bilateral meeting in the state dining room. Then at 4.15 Eastern time here, they're gonna have a joint press conference in the Rose Garden. Now, that's going to be interesting to see if there's any news uh, out of this. Now, I know that they were going to- Are we going to hear a string of consonants come out of this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but let's hope. And, and how long is that string of consonants going to be at this point? <laughs> I know. Uh, let's let's hope that we have good news for ag, because I, I know uh, the Aggies want uh, a more uh, liberated uh, beef market, uh, more flexible beef market yeah. in Japan. So let's hope that's one. I know Japan wants us back into the CPP, whatever they call it now, CPTPP. So we'll see on that. There's that string of consonants I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. CPTPP. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then, uh, um, and, but the real issue that they were going to discuss behind the scenes is dealing with China. And I know that's a sensitive uh, subject. China's going to be very curious as what's, uh, you know, going on in that press conference. And there's a number of other issues, but Japan is a very good ally. So it's going to, it's going to be, you know, very important what comes out of that joint press conference. And the other topic is climate 
change, whether or not there's any signals that uh, Biden will give on that one. And that should be probably our next topic because April 22nd is coming up. That's Earth Day. And, uh, you know, Secretary Vilsack in a uh, interview with uh, what Illinois uh, uh, Radio, Illinois Public uh, Radio, yeah, yeah, gave a really uh, you know signal here that uh, uh, he signaled quote greater opportunities end of quote are coming for landowners to take fragile farmland out of production via the conservation reserve program. Now that's interesting because I want to know what those opportunities are. They want to get. Remember, Congress capped uh, that uh, the uh, you know CRP enrollment to twenty-seven you know million acres, and but Vilsack signaled that this is going to be one of the areas that's going to dovetail into the climate change and meeting uh, you know you know President uh, Biden's commitment to what they call the thirty thirty effort thirty percent of U.S. working lands and public lands, John, being dedicated in some form or fashion to conservation by the year 2030. Now, Vilsack said that plays into the strength of the Conservation Reserve Program. He's probably right there. And then he said it'll play a particularly important role in that. Now, I know Vilsack has wiggle room relative to rental rates, but I don't think he has any wiggle room on increasing the cap. So that means that there'll be a legislative initiative. And ironically, this week, we saw companion bills introduced in both the Senate and the House for a 40 million acre CRP uh, in the supporting land stewardship on 100 million acres of farmland. Now, the sponsors of that on the Democratic side were Senator Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, who's very aggressive lately in ag policy. He's on the Ag Committee now. And Representative uh, Abigail uh, uh, Spanberger from uh, you know Virginia, my home state, right now. So uh, these are clear signals. Uh, and he said it's, these, these incentives are going to be announced soon, within a week or so. Well, does that mean... Let's go off for Jim, yeah. Yeah, does that mean April 22nd? Is this the thing we were looking for for weeks, John? You know, on this pro, on yeah. this podcast, we've been signaling it. It may be. So that's why we like to look at signals. And we're going to see if, if, if uh, you know, we hit this one come April 22nd. Earth Day, Climate Change Summit, where Biden is, has, uh, uh, has offered, uh, you know, to come in for the summit, a uh, uh, host of countries. Yeah, and and again, so we'll be watching that. But you do expect there to be some sort of significant um, uh, climate announcement that day. Probably not just including agriculture either. Oh no, no. Yeah. Overall, this is this is their initial shot. Okay, here we go. The 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 the, the gun stops. Okay, the gun starts. I should say. Yeah. Uh, uh, hit hit it. You know. Here we go. All right, Alan, checking in with expanding CRP will just increase land rent and kill small town services. Um, and that's a concern that was discussed on AgriTalk this week, uh, too, is that, you know, if you uh, farmers do not want government bidding against them for acres. Uh, that was why moderate Democrat, OK, Colin Peterson uh, put the language in the last farm bill, uh, not only to cap those CRP acres, but to uh, but to uh, make the rental payments uh, not conflict 
with the private marketplace. And so we're going to get Colin Peterson back on either this program or AgriTalk or both in, in order to see his opinions on this one. And we're going to continue to check that out. But the caller is right. This was a, a growing concern out there, bipartisan, because a number of lawmakers tried to address that in the last farm bill. So in my continued research on this, I'm going to say, okay, now what has changed? Uh, it's the climate change. And how do you move agriculture to a big way into this, uh, not only climate change, that 30 30 plan. So I think Vilsack has hit on the CRP, you know, program. But I, I agree with the underlying, uh, you, you, you know, tone of the question. This has conflicted with the private marketplace and the, uh, you know, land prices and rental rates. There, the, the evidence is clear on that one. Yeah. While, while we're uh, discussing listener input, I, I actually want to bring up, this wasn't on my list, so I'll warn you, Jim, this is coming out of left field, but um Earlier this week, Chip was talking on the Farmer Forum about um, the uh, Biden uh, tax proposals, and in particular, the issues of ending the estate or uh, um, ending the estate tax exemption, um, and also eliminating step-step basis. And uh, Ted Hamer had an interesting observation uh, where he said, uh, and I apologize to Ted if I'm not paraphrasing me exactly right, but um, Given his brothers, if they have to have one or the other, he would rather give up stepped-up basis if the intent is to keep farmland in the hands of farm farmers and farm families. Because um, if you do that, there is an incentive to hold on to that farmland as long as you can to avoid that tax impact of uh, you know paying the the increased uh, value or the tax on the increase in value on that farmland. I thought that was an interesting take uh, that I know some people wouldn't agree on, but. I know that I'm not going to mention names, but I know Chip got a text from a very well thought conservative farmer who agreed wholeheartedly with that notion. Hmm. Yeah, there's always side, you know, you know, several sides to an issue, and this is one of them. I thought you was going to mention that uh, Vilsack earlier this week uh, uh, admitted that this is a sensitive issue, and that he would talk to Treasury Department officials about this potential. Yeah, uh, um, a development, John. Uh, that mm. caught my eye right there. So he's yeah. go, he's boning up. He knows he hears it wherever he goes. You don't have to go anywhere where where a, a, a farmer or two will ask you about this. But there's always pros and cons on everything. But there's a reason why we had stepped up bases. So anytime you have a ma and that would be a major change. So uh, I would yes, have to do yes. some more research. But boy, when you have a major change in tax policy, you typically get un, uh, un, un, uh, uh, unintended consequences, so they better be careful. But Vilsack saying that he would at least talk with Treasury Department officials was a signal that he's not taking this lightly, and I think that's uh, uh, appropriately so. All right. Uh, Mike uh, checking in asking, where will the 30 percent for acreage come West Plains, Corn Belt, et cetera. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, but they're not talking about taking 30% out of production. They're just saying that 30% of the land has to be somehow actively engaged in climate mitigation. Yes, and it's not 30% of um, farmland, of farmland. Right, 30% of land. It doesn't say it in the language. They really haven't defended of land. So, yeah, 
uh, it it better not be taken from production agriculture because if they want a, a multi-year rally in the grain markets, they just got it in a death knell for the livestock industry. But no, this is not 30% of farmland. And that's what I have mentioned on AgriTalk when, when we you know brought it up uh, uh, earlier this week. Again, this is a subject that's not going to go away. Uh, this was a part of uh, a, a uh, executive announcement of whether or not it will see the light of day still remains to be seen, but uh, we'll continue to cover that. But a good question as well. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, a couple more uh, quick things uh, before we wrap up. First of all, um, we're hearing um, Axios in particular reporting that um, President Biden may be looking to Nick Burns, who is a, a career diplomat to be the ambassador to China, which would be a shift. We have seen politicians in that role most recently. Um, and, and I think with some success, I mean, you look at, uh, oh, now I'm drawing a complete blank on his name, the uh, former governor of Iowa that was- uh, Branstead. Mostly, Branstead, yeah. That was, I think, very quietly had some big success in China, despite the, you know, the tensions that we saw. I think, um, I think he was a very quiet, powerful voice as our ambassador over there. Yeah. Well, Nick Burns, uh, I like him in this regard. He, uh, being a farmer spokesman, he's articulate and uh, he knows the issues. So it's not like he has to bone up on a portfolio. He knows it. He's been involved in a multiplicity of uh, you know foreign policy uh, issues. So anytime you get a quality uh, person like that, I'm not going to argue against it. No, and it's just an interesting uh, change in direction. Um, yes. Where, where you've got somebody that's been involved in that diplomatic service for so long, as opposed to somebody who's been out um, involved in politics uh, for quite some time. It'll be interesting to see uh, how that plays out and how that change does play out with uh, that. Again, uh, just rumored at this point, uh, we'll see if that does follow through and he is yes. the one tapped for that position. Uh, the other thing we need to talk about is the Russia sanctions that went in place today. Um, you know, uh, responding to the cyber attacks, to the involvement uh, in leveraging in the in the election. Although, I mean, come on, the U.S. tries to exert its pressure in elections around the world too. And Let's Russia retaliated today. They announced the yeah. counter retaliation. So here we go. But here's the signal I got uh, on on this one. When I found out the White House is threatening, that means they haven't done it yet, to cut Russia's ties to the global financial system. Now, that's major, John, if that, that were to happen, because they barred American banks from buying newly issued Russian government uh, debt. That's part of sanctions imposed for that solar winds hacked. But the, the short-term impact would be small. But if they go with cutting their ties to the global financial system, that's more than just a symbolic step. That's a willingness to isolate Moscow. Now, here's the potential impact yeah, of that. But, well, but doesn't that really tie them to China? Oh, absolutely. And then this increases what China is going to do anyway with their digital currency. And this further weakens the, the long-term outlook for the U.S. dollar. So they, the, the cat's out of the bag right now. You know, if this were to occur and and look at the potential long term again, I haven't thought through this yet, but look at the ag angle on this one from the currency relationships. What would be the impact of the dollar uh, short term? It would lead to uh, a lower uh, you know values, I would think I'm going to have to talk to currency 
experts who usually are all, all over the map. But if you really go, and this lets China accelerate their move to be the world's leader because a big uh, 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 um, unknown is their currency angle. And if they can dethrone the dollar with whatever they want to call their digital currency, Bitcoin or whatever, okay, that's a big step in their road to uh, power the world. So I, I don't think I'm overstating this at all. And if we move to more digital currencies, what does this do to South America currency issues that we've had over the years? How does that impact Brazil and Argentine soybean growers who hide behind their currency all the time? Again, I've got the questions. I just don't have the answers. But over the next few weeks, we're going to be consulting with Dr. Vince Malanga from LaSalle Economics, uh, Joe Glauber, uh, who's really good on on trade uh, you know, policy angles. So, you know, come back on this one because this could be a potential major mega change issue. Well, in indeed, especially if you set up, as you mentioned, China is trying to uh, take over the role as the world's currency, um, and they see an opening here in, in doing that. Yeah. Um, and so if you've got uh, a China-Russia block on currency and a U.S.-EU block on currency, and then as you mentioned, all the other countries that are trying to sell into those two regions, uh, boy, it does set up an interesting battle over financial control of the globe. Yes. And we've got one minute to go before the producer tells us to stop because we have to stop early today. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. Uh, as I mentioned in the pre-show, I'm in the in the AgriTalk uh, studios here because we are having some technical challenges. So I need to uh, get back to dealing with those before Chip uh, tries to do an afternoon show today. So let's do the, <laughs> Let's do where you're watching for signal this next week, Jim. Well, this, uh, you know, this White House threatening to cut Russia's ties. I'm going to follow up uh, on the you know press conference in the Rose Garden here later this afternoon. I'm going to check uh, weather down in Texas. I was in Lubbock, beautiful Lubbock, Texas uh, last week, or it was it this week. I don't remember, but they need rain and they need it bad. And we're going mm. into their so-called rainy seasons in Texas in May and June. And if they don't get rain soon, you're going to have uh, fewer cotton, uh, 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 fewer cotton planted acres, John. So we could be off to the races on this because you've got an 83 cent, you know, insurance guarantee. So cotton users are well aware of that and they, they're praying for rain as well. All right. Well, Jim, as always, thank you very much. Um, I should note that we will not be here next Friday, uh, but the following Monday, um, you will have a DC to signal the noise. Chip Flory will be in this chair. And then just keep watching the AgriTalk Facebook page. Um, and we'll let you know um, schedule from there going out. Jim, always thank you so much. Great talking with you this Friday. Okay. We'll see you. And thanks for separating the signal from the noise for us once again on DC Signal to Noise. <laughs>